the middle of your Bible, Psalm chapter 60. So go ahead and turn there or open up if you have a device to that scripture. And we are doing a series called Medicine for the Soul. We've been going through selected psalms, verse by verse, and we're, we are in Psalm 60 tonight. And uh, I've been mentioning to a lot of you when I speak to you individually, if you're looking for a reading plan and you don't know what to read or you know, where should you go in terms of opening your Bible on a given day, let me just give you an example of something you could do. So a psalm a day is spiritual medicine. Today is the 20th, correct? So flip over to Psalm chapter 20 for a second. Let me just give you an example. And this is something that I would do uh, just, just devotionally because when I open my Bible, I'm a student of Scripture, so I'm always preparing messages. When I'm done with one, I start preparing the next one. That's just my life, and I am grateful to be able to do that and get paid for that. However... I also want to just read the Bible devotionally and not necessarily worry about the Hebrew and the Greek and all that. Here's an example of a psalm that we all could have read today. Maybe you did, and here's what it says. It's a psalm of David, Psalm 20. Matches the day of the month, so it makes it easy. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. May he send you help from the sanctuary and support you from Zion. And may he remember all your meal offerings and find your burnt offering acceptable, Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your counsel. We will sing for joy over your victory. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. That's going to come up tonight in our text. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven. With saving strength of his right hand. Some boast in chariots, some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright. Save, O Lord. May the king answer us in the day we call. Praise the Lord. Now, we are in Psalm 60 tonight, and Psalm 60 also has 12 verses. And uh, we're going to. Just go ahead and go verse by verse, and I'm going to open tonight by sharing the heading of the psalm with you. And what, what you'll find is that some of the psalms that you, when you open your Bible and you look at a psalm, you'll find a heading at the top. This is a long one, and it sounds really complicated. Here's what it says. For the choir director, some scholars believe the choir director is ultimately God. Some would say it's a human, or that God is the ultimate choir director. I'll let you chew on that. According to Shushan Eduth, a mictum of David to teach when he struggled with Aram Naharim and with Aram Zobah. And Joab returned and smote 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. And all God's people said, huh? <laughs> all right, let's pray. <laughs> Father, thank you so much for the book of Psalms. It is medicine for our soul and we need it so desperately, Lord. It's a spiritual prescription. It ministers to the deepest and most important part of us, our hearts. And that is not our beating heart, but that is the core of who we are. I pray tonight you would minister to the hearts of your people. I pray that you would show us wonderful things from your word. I pray that you would teach us. This is a psalm that's to teach and instruct. And so I pray that that would happen. And that as we are instructed in the word of God, we would be more equipped and walk out more of your will for our lives. 
Unto your glory, in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So the choir director, according to Shushan Eduth, if you're taking notes, Shushan Eduth is translated lily of the testimony, of testimony, or the lily being an emblem of beauty. Some would say this means a beautiful poem, poem or a beautiful song. Lilies are often used when we think of the resurrection. So maybe there's something there implied. You know, if you ever go to a church service on a Easter Sunday, you'll sometimes see lilies by the pulpit and they speak of life and hope and resurrection. So this is the possible meaning of it, but that's the, the direct translation is simply a lily of testimony or an emblem of beauty. And whenever we look at the word of God, it is beautiful and deep and uh, it ministers to us. You'll notice it's called a mictum of David. What does that mean? There's a lot of different views on miktom is the way you say it. It's found on only six of our psalms. Psalm 16, 56, 57, 58, 59, and 60. So Psalm 60, some see within the psalm a hidden story or a hidden gem or hidden beauty. It's also the idea, a mictum of a golden psalm. Let me explain for a moment. It has the idea of an engraving. So some see that the idea of the miktom is this idea that what is taught to you would be engraved on your heart. There's this idea of a golden psalm within the word, and there's different uh, views of how to break this down. But it's something that is stamped. In the treasury of David, Charles Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers, he wrote a Bible commentary on the book of Psalms, and he observed that Mictoms are golden psalms that begin with prayer, imply trouble, but abound in holy confidence, and close with songs of assurance and ultimately safety and joy. A colleague of Spurgeon's believed that a mictom means to hide, and it has the idea of a secret or a mystery. And so some believe that when you combine the idea of a mictom, you have the idea of a psalm of a precious secret that gets revealed to you as you dive into the Word of God. There are gems in the Bible. They're all over. They're in all 66 books. And the more you jump into the Psalms and you study the Word of God, the more you will find out about things that perhaps were hidden to you in the past. And so uh, some also see in this idea of a mictum, this idea that sometimes we, when we look at life, Life can be a bit of a secret or a mystery to us because we don't know what God's doing. Here's an example. We might pray for something and maybe the answer, God answered our prayer because we have to remember that sometimes he says no. <laughs> we, we, we often couch the idea of God answering my prayer is that he agreed with me. He did what I wanted him to do. But prayer is not getting your will on earth, right? It's getting God's will in heaven and on earth. And that's how Jesus taught us to pray. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So sometimes the idea of a mictum is this idea that life is, uh, it's like a question mark. Like what's going on, Lord? What are you doing? And I was reading one writer on this and he was saying that maybe what we need to see in this idea at the top of this psalm is that God is doing something Maybe mysterious, but he has an ultimate good purpose in mind, as we know he always does, because he's good. 
So his purpose will ultimately be good, even if I'm confused, even if I'm going through something else. Here's something to consider. It might be for somebody besides you. You know, we tend to, to approach the Word of God and life with a very humanistic perspective that the world and life's all about me. But if we've learned anything about the gospel, the Lord says, you make your life about God and others, not that you don't care about yourself, but that our problem is we probably love ourselves too much, right? Even if we beat ourselves up, that's because our expectations are high of ourselves. But so the idea there is that this this mictum has the idea that maybe you're, you have a question mark right now about life, but you could understand that God may be doing something deeper than you could imagine. The mictum is given to teach, to instruct. Reading from Spurgeon, he said, David obeyed the precept to teach the children of Israel. He recorded the Lord's mighty acts that they might be rehearsed in the ears of generations to come. Golden secrets are to be told on the housetops. These things were not done in a corner and ought not to be buried in silence, close quote. And then the setting of the psalm, quickly, because you'll notice that there's something written here after the idea to teach. It says, when he struggled, top of the psalm, with Aram Naharim and Aram Zobah. And the setting of the psalm is 2 Samuel chapter 8, especially verses 3 through 14. And there David is warring with other uh, people groups in the land of Israel and outside the land of Israel. And literally, he's at war. David was a warrior. He was the sweet psalmist of Israel. He loved God. He worshiped God. He became the king of Israel. But he was also a warrior. One of the famous stories is David versus Goliath. But he warred much more than that. And there was seemingly always a conflict and a battle. Times of peace were very rare. And so the setting, if you're interested to read more on this, is 2 Samuel chapter 8. I'm not going to go there tonight. But the idea behind the psalm is at some point in the conflict, uh, with 2 Samuel 8 in mind, they had lost a battle. You know, it, it would seem that whenever Israel was in right standing with God, they just militarily, they prospered. They were often outnumbered, outgunned, to put it in a modern way but seemed to just win battles. And oftentimes with just the worship leaders in the front and God would confuse the other uh, army or he would do something miraculous. So when they lost the battle, they, began ask, they would begin asking questions. Like in the book of Joshua, when they lost to the little people group of Ai and Joshua fell on his face and was like, Lord, what's, what's wrong? And they found out that someone had taken you know, some of the booty and they had disobeyed God and it got, all got discovered. It was a man named Achan. And so this is the backdrop. Something has happened where they have suffered a defeat. Ultimately, they're going to get a victory in the overall battle, but something happened. And here's what, how David opens the psalm. He says, Oh God, thou has rejected us. If you have a New King James, it says, cast us off. Thou has broken us, New King James, broken us down. Thou has been angry, and then he cries, Oh, restore us. If you have a new King James, Oh, restore us again. Oh, God, you have rejected us. Now, the song is written, and remember, all the Psalms are songs. Ultimately, they were sung. We don't have all the music and how they went, but they were songs. This was the hymn book of Israel, sung at their feast and the like. And remember that even the night of the Passover, Jesus sang a hymn with his disciples. 
And we know what he would have sung from because they sang the Hallel Psalms, Psalms 113 through 118 during the Passover. So Jesus would have been a singer. He would have sang in synagogue just like we sing in the church. That would have been a regular part of his worship as well. And so it says, O God, thou or you have rejected us. You have broken us down. Notice there is, it's written in the midst of a defeat and this campaign against these enemies at the top of the psalm. And we can relate because when we fail, it seems as if God has maybe not answered our prayers as we would hope. Maybe sometimes we have a sense that God is disciplining us or maybe you've even looked up to the heavens before and said, oh God, what did I do to deserve this? <laughs> and sometimes it's nothing that you did. It's just a fallen world and things happen. But other times, God is using a defeat to get your attention. Because if we're always walking and we win everything every time, right? We're just skating. We've got no problems. We win at everything. Humanly speaking, we're probably not going to call out to God. Because <laughs> we're going to be like, I got this. I got it going on. I, I win at everything, right? But when they suffered a defeat, David wrote, why have you rejected us? Why have you broken us down? Now, this is a song of faith and hope despite difficult circumstances, and I think that we can have that, but why were they defeated? What was going on? We don't know for sure, but David saw it as God's discipline and judgment. David says, you have rejected us. You have broken us. You have been angry with us. And then the cry Oh God, restore us. Spurgeon writes, To be rejected or cast off by God is the worst calamity that can befall a man or a people. But the worst form of it is when the person is not aware of it and is indifferent to it. When the divine desertion causes mourning and repentance, it will be but partial and temporary. When a cast-off soul sighs for its God, it is indeed not cast off at all. When it gets your attention, when honest prayer, ownership leads to repentance, then it can lead to revival. And I've been around long enough to tell you, and I'm sure you know this, that Christians inside the church fall on their face quite regularly. You know, just when I am ready to say that nothing surprises me anymore, then something surprises me. <laughs> And our frailty as humans and the way that we can disappoint ourselves and others abounds. And the more you see it, the more it, it causes you to want to cry out to God. Oh, give ear, shepherd of Israel, David writes in Psalm 80, verse 1. He goes on to say, come and save us. Oh, God, restore us. How long will you be angry with the prayer of your people? You can read through Psalm 80, at the end he says, revive us, restore us. This is a regular feature in the Psalms where there's an acknowledgement that obviously something has gone wrong and Lord, if we are being disciplined by you, we're going to cry out that you would restore us. Now there's some poetic uh, language in verse 2 of Psalm 60. It says, thou hast made the land quake, uh, split it open, and while God did do that in the time of Korah, here it's poetic, or you could even say apocalyptic imagery. 
You've made the land quake. It feels like it's shaking. You've split it open. It feels like there's breaches all around. And then David says, heal its breaches for it totters. And to apply it to our lives, sometimes life just feels like an earthquake, man. It feels like the ground's opening up to swallow us, man. And that's hard. And this is the poetry in the psalm. Because in Southern California, we understand earthquakes, right? (laughs) And you've probably lived through several if you've been around for a while. And it's a scary thing when the earth is quaking. And sometimes it rolls and you wonder, when is this going to stop? And I remember a major earthquake that hit when I think Shane was just a baby. And my first instinct was to run and get him out, out of his crib and then find a doorway. And you're scrambling and... So much going on. Uh, Maybe you could see the poetic imagery here is great civil commotion or uh, the shaking of times of war. Everything's shaking, Lord. It's tottering. It feels like it's going to crash. And I think that, that poetry there is so fitting for how we often feel. We feel instability, unstable. We look around us and we feel like we've lost some control and we don't know what's going to happen. And, and that is when we feel like we're in that shaky place. We know there's only one way to look, right? When, you know, the last year has been crazy in our world. Things that, you know, I was listening to another uh, pastor and he was saying, if, if you could, if someone would have told you, and he showed this video, this lady gets arrested watching a football game. She's outside in the stands sitting with her family. She gets arrested by this high school police officer for wearing no mask. And he tases her and eventually handcuffs her and leads her away. She's at a football game, a high school football game. There's very few people in the stands. She's sitting with her family. Come to find out she has asthma, so the mask is an issue for her apparently. And she got arrested (laughs) And the pastor showed the video and he was like, could you imagine that you would see that in America if I told you a year ago that that would happen? But that's just one example of a lot of crazy things that are so, it's like, you know, people have called it the new normal. And we can feel like we're tottering. Suicide rates are, you know, getting younger and younger. There's a desperation. And David says, Lord, heal the breach. Jeremiah 10.10 uses apocalyptic language and says, The Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. And then Psalm 46, verse 3 says, Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, Selah. And then it goes into the promise of God. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, thy holy dwelling places of the Most High God. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved, even though cataclysmic things are going on. As a believer, how can you be stable? How can you find peace in troubled times? How can my life be a witness when everything else is shaking? I told you guys on a Sunday morning recently, I went to the dentist and the dentist asked me why I wasn't grinding my teeth. I thought that was a strange question. But then she went on to say that people are coming in at unseen levels and they've actually chipped their tooth because they're grinding on their teeth because there's so much chaos and uncertainty. And and I had mentioned on this Sunday morning she said, how, how is it that you're not 
and the door opened and I talked about what gives me peace. I talked about how perfect love casts out all fear. You see, as a Christian, and this is something that we need to get our arms around, we shouldn't even be afraid to die. Because to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Paul said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is Oh, I heard you say it, but I don't think you I don't think you believe it. See, we're good at saying things as Christians. We can quote Bible verses. But do you believe that to be in heaven with the Lord would be a gain for you? And I understand the human side because this is all we know. Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heaven and come down, Isaiah 64, 1, that the mountains might quake at your presence as fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries. Oh, that you would come down. This is like in the book of Isaiah 64, 1, it's a cry for revival. Oh, Lord, come, because everything else is chaos. The first three verses are about the problem that has made thy people experience hardship there's no doubt that David is attributing the defeat to God, allowing it to happen. Thou has given us wine to drink, another metaphor that makes us stagger. We're like drunk people who have, we've had too much wine and we're staggering around in unbelief, tottering around, shaken, you name it, this is the image. If you've ever uh, seen a person who's inebriated, it's... It's a pretty sad scene, really, when you think about it, because they're just out of control, stumbling around, can't talk. That's the image that's put before us. Now we shift to the positive. And this is how the Psalms often work, and the mictums especially. He goes on in verse 4, he says, Thou has given a banner, you have given a banner to those who fear you, that it may be displayed because of the truth, and then, Everybody, it says Selah. And Selah is a pause in the music, an interlude, if you will. A pregnant pause, you might say, as a speaker. A pause in the music if you're a musician. But Selah has the idea of a pause to let the truth you just read sink into your heart. So you don't just move on without pondering it, right? This is a good place to park, ponder, consider. You have given a banner. If you have an NIV, it says, but for those who fear you, you've raised a banner to be unfurled against the bow. Selah. And a New Living Translation says, you've raised a banner for those who fear you, a rallying point in the face of attack. And then the ESV says that they may flee to it from the bow. You can tell by the different uh, versions that there's a little bit of wiggle room on the Hebrew here. But the idea is, God has raised up, the idea of a banner is an ancient flag. And here's what would happen. You know, we, we're all familiar with the American flag. I have neighbors that fly the American flag and they keep a light on it at night and they do all the things that you properly do to respect the flag. I've been at many memorial services where they fold the flag. And if go, go and look at the, uh, the meaning, what they read when they fold the flag for a veteran. It's an amazing tribute to what our country actually believes about God, the Savior, the Bible, etc. But anyway, 
That's a, and a banner is, in the ancient world, armies would fight under the ensigns of their gods, the banners of their gods. So they would carry flags, typically. And the flags would have pictorial uh, depictions of their gods and goddesses. So they would essentially say, I'm going to fight this war under the protection of the god so-and-so. And they would fly their flags. Israel often fought with the ark, actually. And that would be essentially the sign of the presence of God. And so you might ask, well, what is a banner? Well, a banner is the idea of confidence in God. And I want to take you to a parallel passage. Just hold your place in the psalm for a second. Go to the second book, which is Exodus 17. Sunday mornings, we're going through the book of Exodus, so we're going to get to this story in full, but I want to just touch on it. This is a, a war against Amalek uh, early in Israel's history. Moses is up on the top of the mountain. Joshua is fighting below. You guys know the story. As much as Moses can keep his hands up in worship and prayer to God, they are winning the battle against Amalek below. The moment that Moses' hands get heavy, they start to lose. It's this sign of when you're worshiping, that's where victory is found. So Aaron and her, Moses' brother and, and another, come up and they steady his hands and they, they defeat Amalek. So they win the battle. So if you go down to uh, Exodus 17, look at verse 13. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. This has been rendered Jehovah Nisi in Hebrew, or Yahweh Nisi. Nisi is N-I-S-S-I transliterated into English. The Lord is my banner. He is the standard of my people. What is a banner? It's a flag, an ensign, a streamer, an emblem, a standard, a rallying point as put up on a pole. Do you guys remember that when the Israelites sinned against God and he sent uh, these fiery serpents among them? Moses was instructed to put a bronze serpent up on a pole so that everyone who had been bitten by the snake just had to look at the pole and they would live. And Jesus in John 3 says, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, and he's speaking of the cross there, that he might draw all men to himself. In some way, this idea of the banner and what you look to and what you lean on, I have a friend that gets in depth in the uh, uh, Hebrew picture language, what Moses would have written originally, and... Uh, the, the essence, let me just kind of simplify this because I know I've thrown a lot at you. You can think of a banner as a refuge, a focal point, a rallying point. And my friend said, you could render it this way. The Lord is the one I lean on. That's Jehovah Nisi. The Lord is my refuge. The Lord is the one I lean on. And every time I teach this, I have to say, Lean on me when you're not strong. Okay, that's enough. Anyway, so I want you to see this because in times of trouble, 
The Lord, I want you to make this personal now, is my banner. Psalm 23 opens with, the Lord is my shepherd. And then you can claim all the rest of the promises in Psalm 23 if the Lord is your shepherd. Well, can you say tonight, and I hope you can, the Lord is my banner. He's my rallying point. He's my refuge. He's the one I go to. He's the one I lean on in troubled times. I'm not fretting. I'm not biting my fingernails off. Look, I'm concerned as much as anybody else, but I know in whom I have trusted. And I know I've got one Savior. One go-between between God and man. That's the man, the God-man, Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen? The Lord is my banner. That's what David is saying here. And the same God who brought the trouble, back to Psalm 60, is the same God that is the solution. You say, well, why is that? Why does God allow discipline into my life, then rescues me from it? Well, <laughs> let me ask you a question. You ever had to discipline a child? It's, it's because... He allows us to taste some defeat so that we can see in whom we find final victory. Because you can get away with it for a while as a human, but ultimately you got to make peace with God, man. And you got to live your life for divine uh, purposes, for something that's transcendent. Amen? And so we got the Selah after verse 4. And you can see how fitting it is because it's like, let it sink in. Now, we're, we're going to move a little quicker here, but verse 5 stays on the positive back in Psalm 60. It says that thy beloved may be delivered. That's why the Lord is our banner for deliverance. And then it's a cry, save with thy right hand, answer us. Lord, we've lost here. We're, we're being disciplined. Would you save? Would you be our banner? Notice that the people of God are called thy beloved. That you, thy beloved, your beloved people would be delivered. You know, God loves us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Do you know that uh, over and over again in the New Testament, the church is identified as the beloved of God. Paul writes Romans 1.7, beloved of God in Rome. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, the beloved of God in Thessalonica. Ephesians 5.1 and 2, the beloved in Ephesus. And so on and so forth. We are the beloved of God. And I will tell you, these ancient cities weren't pretty. And if you were a believer in Rome, you might not be the most sophisticated, mature believer. These are places where believers were struggling in the ancient world with a lot of stuff, just like we struggle in our day. But they're called the beloved in Rome, the beloved in Thessalonica, the beloved in this city. Because God has decided to love his people. And the moment that you receive Christ Jesus into your life, you're the beloved of God. And even if you're not a believer tonight, God loves you. That's why Jesus came. God, 6, has spoken from his sanctuary. This could be rendered um, in his holiness as well. Uh, God has spoken in his holiness, in NAS. He, I will exult, I will rejoice, I will portion out Shechem, measure out the valley of Sukkot. And this simply just means that God now interjects, personally speaks in the psalm in his holiness. And what does he say? 
It's like you get the answer here. You've been praying? Okay, here it is. God speaks from his sanctuary. He answers the prayer. He speaks in his holiness. And he says, I will rejoice. He rejoices to give his people victory. I will portion out, speaks of control. And then we have some lands mentioned here. Shechem, Sukkot, uh, east and west of the Jordan River. God rejoices to give you victory. Did you know that? He's happy to see you succeed. In fact, he wants you to have a victorious walk in the Lord. He rejoices. Heaven rejoices over one sinner that repentance that repents, Luke 15. But God also rejoices, we just saw in the psalm, when you succeed, when you do well. When you're faced with that temptation for the 99th time and finally you decide to go the other way. Praise the Lord. And I think we could say the Lord says, good. Michael's getting better. He didn't step into that same pit for the hundredth time. He rejoices when we're walking in victory. And when we're defeated, when we shoot ourselves in the foot, so to speak, what do you think heaven feels? We can grieve the Holy Spirit with our words, Ephesians chapter 4. He wants us to succeed. He is for you, not against you. Man, you got to remember that. Because some of you have a view of God that's so unhealthy. And oftentimes it comes from our past. He's for you. He rejoices when you do well. In triumph, I will parcel out Shechem. I'll divide it. Uh, It speaks of sovereignty, possession, victory. He rejoices in victory. God is our banner. Notice God continues to speak in verse 7, and he's now claiming lands that have been or will be conquered because the, the psalm, I think, is looking at a hopeful outcome and God is answering it here Gilead is mine Manasseh is mine now God is claiming these for himself Ephraim also is the helmet of my head interesting Judah is my scepter notice mine mine my my now Ephraim denotes perhaps the military here Judah might speak of the law Civil power, <clears throat> but they've been subdued. Moab is my wash basin or wash bowl. That would probably be for your feet there. Moab was an ancient enemy of the Israelites. In fact, the Moabites uh, got Israel in trouble in the book of Numbers, and they intermarried with the women, and it was a total disaster. So God deals with them. And again, remember, we're dealing with military struggles as well. Over Edom, where that's the land that was developed uh, from Esau, Jacob's brother. I, I will throw my shoe upon Edom, or I'll toss my sandal. Speaks of being under uh, authority here. Shout, shout loud, O Philistia, because of me, or over, over Philistia I shall triumph. There, you can look in your study Bibles for east and west, north and south. <clears throat> I think most scholars see that God is saying, I have victory over the whole land of Israel. East, west, north, south, I control it all. It's mine, I will claim it, and I will use David to accomplish it. And then verses 9 through 12, we see another cry for help. Who will bring me into the besieged city? Who will lead me to Edom? Still some question about 
helping help from God. Has not thou thyself, O God, rejected us? Will thou not go forth with our armies, O God? O give us help. That word could be translated salvation. Save us against the adversary. For deliverance by man is vain. Now, as often as we see in the Psalms, we have the problem, we have the prayer and the potential solution, but not yet fully realized, even though there's a promise there. And so there's still a little question mark hanging, and that's sometimes how, how we feel. <laughs> like we pray about something and we get a, a preacher preaches about it on the radio or we turn in our devotion and it's speaking just about that thing. We're like, oh yeah, God just spoke to me from heaven. Lightning bolt, the page opened and wow, there it is. And then an hour passes and you're like, well, was that really God? I don't know if he, you know, was it really a lightning bolt? Did I just happen to turn that, to that page in my Bible? Is the Lord speaking to me? What's going on? We can do all of that. Will thou not go forth with our armies? Oh God, remember Moses said, if you don't go, I ain't going nowhere. If you don't go with us, we ain't going. I think David is repeating that. Give us help against the adversary. For deliverance by man is vain. That word means empty. It's just not going to last. Uh, write down for you note takers Psalm 13. I won't have you turn there, but similar feel. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel against my soul? Having sorrow in my heart all day... All day, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me. O Lord, my God, enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Answer me, O Lord. And then the, the confident end, which I want to encourage you with. Through God, what's your Bible say? We shall do valiantly. So now a confident end. It is he who will tread down our adversaries. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. We did a memorial service here earlier today. And uh, family laid to rest. Uh, Frank Spicer, he lived almost 91 years. They were part of the church and then moved out of the area, but we held the memorial service here. And uh, I was sharing a sports story. Frank was a big Dodgers fan and he did get to see the Dodgers win the World Series, but his family said he fell asleep during the last five minutes of the game. <laughs> you know, he's 90 and he was having some health issues. But anyway, um, I mentioned his favorite Bible verse was John 3.16. And so I pulled up a story. Maybe you guys have heard this before, but it was about Tim Tebow. And Tim Tebow was... Uh, the quarterback for the Florida Gators, and they played in the national championship game in 2008. And it was, I think, January the 9th, 2008. And uh, he, had, he had war on his eye black, uh, Philippians 4.13, for a while, and they had a huge winning streak. And even some of the non-Christian coaches were getting a little bit, like, mysterious about the, the Bible verse is working, man. Don't change the verse. What does it say again? I can do all things. And I don't think Paul wrote that about sports, but... You know, hey, there it is. So Tebow's wearing it, and he changed it on the day of the national championship game to John 3.16. During the game, 94 million people Googled John 3.16. Wow. Let me say that again. 
94 million people. So they won the national championship game three years past, and Tebow's in the professional uh, NFL now, and he's the quarterback for the Denver Broncos. Three years to the day, so from January 2008, I think, if I'm correct, you can check me on the dates, to 2011, the Denver Broncos are playing the Pittsburgh Steelers in the playoffs. My beloved Steelers. I won't forget this game. But uh, Tebow threw a late touchdown, beat us in that game, and they went on to play the Patriots, and you know what happened then. They lost. But So after the game, uh, he wears the eye black again, John 3.16. 90 million people Google the Bible verse during that playoff game. He's walking to do a press conference with the media. And the uh, media guy for the team stops him in the hallway. I think his name was Kevin. And he says, do you know what happened during this game? He goes, yeah, we just beat the Pittsburgh Steelers and we're going to play the <laughs> Patriots. He goes, no, 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 you don't know what happened. He begins to go through the statistics and let me just see if I can remember them. Your yards per rush were 3.16. Your pass completion percentage was 31.6. The TV rating was 31.6. Your time of possession that you guys held the ball was 31.6. And he goes down and everything has 316 in it. Tebow's been interviewed multiple times. And he says, if you think that that was just a coincidence, that wasn't, that was God. And through those two games, 184 million people Googled a Bible verse that I hope you all know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him won't perish. They'll have everlasting life. Now it shocked me, uh, but maybe this is just because I'm a preacher that that many people had to Google the verse. Because <laughs> I thought most people who grew up in Sunday school know that verse, but. But I just want you to know that God is a God of salvation. And he will do valiantly through us. Through God, we shall do valiantly. He'll cause you to be brave. He'll, he'll cause you to know a power you've never known before. He has the power to save, the power to transform, the power to use your life. He gives you spiritual gifts when you get saved. The Holy Spirit comes and lives in you. It's a whole incredible new life. Praise God that we can do valiantly through him. We can do all things. Our God, Nehemiah said, our God will fight for us. Our God is faithful. And so I want you to just maybe take another Selah moment for a second and just concentrate on that last verse. Through God, we shall do valiantly. God has good works prepared beforehand that you and I should walk in them. We shall do. Maybe we need to start standing a little bit more confidently on those promises. We shall do valiantly through him. This is not a time to wallow in fear. This is not a time to back off. This is not a time to play games with God. This is a time to say, Lord, I want to do valiantly for you. I want to be in the game. And my prayer for you is that you will use your life. You know, I think the room is filled with mostly Christians here, but I, I will say this. 
It's not just about getting saved. It's about using your life in service of this great king. Amen? And touching many other lives with his truth. Lord, as we bow before you in the closing moments of this time together, we are grateful for Psalm 60. The Lord is my banner. You will raise up a banner. You are our refuge and our strength. You are the one we rally to. You are the one we lean on. And you have raised a banner for your people. And every time we have a question about where to go, we go to a throne of grace to find help, mercy, in time of need. I was talking to a brother in the Lord recently, and just we were emphasizing, we were just kind of basking in this truth that when we pray, we pray to the God-man, the throne of grace, our high priest understands us because he's still 100% man and 100% God. And when we pray to our high priest, when we go to our banner, he empathizes, sympathizes with our weaknesses because he was in all points tempted as us yet without sin. He understands. He knows what it's like to be human for that's what he is. He's also divine. And there's a mystery in that, but my prayer for you is that you'd realize that when you go to your banner, when you go to your God, when you rally to him, he understands and he promises to pour out mercy and grace in time of need. Reread Hebrews 4, the end of that chapter. It's so beautiful. Now with your head and heart bowed and those of you who are watching live stream, I just want you to consider a simple question. Is the Lord your shepherd? Is the Lord your banner? If you're not sure, he is a prayer away. But I do want to explain that just saying a sinner's prayer, while it's good, it includes the idea of repenting, and that means to turn away from your sin, turn away from doing it on your own, and Trusting him fully for your salvation, but also saying, Lord, I want to follow you. Teach me what it, it looks like to follow you as my king and my God. So it's something this simple, but yet this profound. You could say it in your heart, Lord Jesus, I believe in who you are. I believe that you're God who entered into time and space, Emmanuel, God with us. I believe you lived the perfect life that I could never live. I believe you died on the cross for my sin. Pray, pray it if it's you. I believe that you rose again from the dead to defeat our mortal enemy, death itself. I'm turning from my sin tonight, placing my trust in you and you alone for my salvation. And I'm asking you to help me to follow you. I know I will do it imperfectly, I know how much I fall short, but thank you that you paid for my sin at the cross. Teach me your ways. Help me to follow you as my good shepherd who laid down his life for me. Lord, for those who are crying out tonight, we give you praise and thanks. And there may be some who feel like they're prodigals. It's been a while since they've been walking with the shepherd. And if that's you, I pray you do some business with your Lord right here and right now. And Father, also for the saints of God, the beloved of God,
who are here tonight. I know um, so many are fighting the good fight, hungry to hear from you and to apply your word. Would you bless them? Keep them. Let your beautiful face shine upon them. Give them shalom. Give them peace. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.